in that vein, I remember a story when I was a kid of, you know, back when there were cameras that actually had film in them. Right. <laughs> Let's just say a relative of mine who shall remain unnamed went to a wedding and just took a voluminous amount of pictures. Oh, no. Forgetting, of course, ever to put the film in the camera. Oh. Didn't realize, you know, because back then it was 12, 24, 36. Right. So right. you kind of knew how many you had and just forgot and <laughs> took no pictures of anybody at the wedding anyway. <laughs> we, won't do that. we won't do that tonight. Anyway, so there's a lot going on. Um, and last week was really hard to focus on one particular thing, but let's focus on money and funding. I yeah. think this is going to be something we will continue to talk about a lot. There's a lot of activity uh, in Asia right now. A lot and a lot, even outside of Asia, focusing on Asia, and that is really what I want. That's really what I want, and I can tell you some stuff as we go along. Yeah, um, but new, new funds and the thing, as you know, I'm, I'm in the in the process of trying to raise a fund as well. And as I always say, the pie is not. I'm not trying to take a piece of the pie away from anybody else. The pie is just getting bigger. Mm. And when I see new funds, either existing funds starting another another round or new funds is coming into the market, I get really happy because more money means more investments and more investments mean higher valuations for companies out here that are doing the right thing and that, that yeah. cannot be bad. Just cannot be bad. We're not anywhere close to the bubble that's going on in the United States. It's, there's no bubble in Europe, obviously. Um, but the more people that are paying attention out here, the higher valuations are for really good companies. So let's talk about it. And let's, go from, small to, let's go from small to large. Mm-hmm. Right, and I don't make a value judgment about size. We have some very impactful funds out here that started smaller. Let's just talk about one of them, Golden Gate Ventures. Their first fund was kind of a $10 million syndicate-style fund. They invested in some of the best companies in Southeast Asia, and their track record over a two- to three-year period of time has allowed them to raise a much larger fund. That's not necessarily in the news this week, but it's good context for what happens if you actually do a good job in a small fund. Hmm. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, there was always that thing in the 80s, wasn't it, with venture capital, that the bigger the fund, the bigger the return. There was that sort of macho approach to VC. Are we sort of seeing a change in that? Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it's a good question. And I was actually having this conversation today um, with a company that I was trying to help fund. And they said, because we actually did, we have a commitment now to fund them. So we were all very happy over the last couple of days. And there's more and more interest in this particular company. Anyway, they did ask the question, what is the percentage of companies that actually get funded that then go on to fail? Hmm. And I said, it's a loaded question. If you look at, you know, pick your least favorite venture capitalist that makes the most investments and they believe that somewhere between 80 and 85% of their companies will fail. Hmm. But if you look at something like benchmark capital, five partners, very egalitarian company, Everybody has to agree if they're going to invest. And, and if it's your idea to invest in a particular company and that company makes money and the four other partners make no money that year, everybody splits equally. So there's a real support system and it's small and they have not built an infrastructure like Andreessen Horowitz. And what that means is that they can focus all their time and energy on building these companies. And to answer your question, they don't do multi-billion dollar funds. They do smaller funds with the idea of we don't want to make as many investments and we believe if we don't make as many investments, we can have higher returns. Right. When this article was written about them about a year and a half ago, it said that they have returned over $22 billion to investors and that they've returned on average about 1,000% to the people that have invested in their funds. The point is that size, in my, in my mind, is a detriment, right? There's an, there's an optimal size, and the bigger is not always the better, particularly from a return perspective. And I think as you get much, much larger, you just lose track of the things that are in your portfolio, and now you're operating in the realm of hope. And I don't operate in hope. I operate in facts. Right, so, yeah. yeah, I don't think that's happening here yet. I think, sure, you want to have, and we've spoken about this before, and you want to have a fund, ideally, that can follow on. So if you make a good investment, but for some reason, in the one to two years in which your company is growing, when it comes out of that when it comes out of that sort of into the series A phase and it needs to have capital like growth just to, I mean, capital just to grow. If for some reason there's a crisis or some kind of financial thing going on in the world that has nothing to do with your company, it's good if you have money left over to follow on with. Mm. Um, and that's why slightly bigger is better than slightly smaller. But you have to start somewhere. And for these, these teams that go out and raise $5 million to $10 million, good for them because that is hard. 
yeah. particularly if it's their first fund. So I know this guy, Hashime Hota, and I did not know he was working on this, but he has launched a, pre a $5 million pre-seed fund, and he's going to focus on Vietnam. With, there's not a lot of focus from people external to Vietnam on what's going on there. Mm -hmm. The name of his fund is called InnovaTube. I'm not sure that's a great name. Hard for me to pronounce. Mm -hmm. But Hotasan is actually a really great guy. And he's, actually, he's quite famous or well-known in Japan, along with his ex-partner, whose name is Miku Hirano. And this was actually in the news unbeknownst to me. So it's not like I'm shrilling for these, this team. I don't even know if she's involved, but the two of them have just done some really great stuff together. Depending on how much people know about the ecosystem in Japan, the two of them started a company called Naked Technology. Mm. And this is back in 2006, 2007, and they sold it to Mixi. And Mixi is one of the pioneers um, in the online sort of social networking space. They worked there for a little bit, and then they both went out and started something, something called Cinnamon as well. And now they're working on separate things. But the two of them are, are quite famous and well-known. Hirano-san is more likely to build companies, and Hoto-san is actually more likely to be an investor. So it's interesting that they've actually split this up. Yeah. But he wants to invest in sort of seed-stage companies. He feels like he's very good at this. His partner is also a serial entrepreneur. Um, and they're focusing on Vietnam with the likelihood or the possibility that they'll also invest in the rest of Southeast Asia. And it's just good for the ecosystem. Hmm. Full, so, full stop. Is it usual for entrepreneurs like that to go and start up a fund and go and invest in a growth market? Are we seeing that as a precedent or is this sort of a new development? No, we definitely are seeing it. So if you, if you look at Monk's Hill Capital run, run by a guy named Peng Ong, Peng is a Singaporean. He's one of the pioneers, I guess, in this ecosystem as well as an investor. He runs an 80 to $100 million fund, so one of the best and one of the biggest funds in Southeast Asia. And his background was helping to start um, an online dating site in the United States. Mm. So the name of, escapes me, but I, I can find it pretty quickly. But Peng was really famous for Match.com. Sorry. So he was part of the team that helped Match grow and get built. And also when it got listed on, on NASDAQ, or I think it was actually sold to IACP. I don't remember exactly. But he was very prominent there. And he said, I want to give this experience, the Silicon Valley experience, back to entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia. Mm. And he came home. And one of the interesting things about him, um, so this fund, his fund, Monk's Hill, has been around for two or three years now. And he's invested in some very good companies, not just locally, but globally. But yeah, I think he's started this trend of entrepreneurs coming back and sort of giving back to the system, right? Mm. And he's been very good at that, sponsoring events, mentoring people, and investing in companies that may not have otherwise been invested, but have grown really nicely. One of them is a company called PlayLab, which has been one of the most successful mobile and online game companies in Southeast Asia. So yeah, I don't think that Hotasan is actually starting this trend. But I think it's really positive for an ecosystem when the entrepreneurs who have made money from other people's investments kind of give back by starting their own investment funds. Right. Are they going in as investors or really with that sort of altruistic approach? I mean, if they were to go in and build an ecosystem but lose money, would they be happy? Uh, I don't think so. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a really good question. I, and it depends, right? And I heard somebody talking about this in the movie space today, but I think in the sort of tech style space, I don't think there's much altruism to be found. Yeah. Right. I think it's different. And we saw this a few years ago with a company called Color. Yeah. I forget who the founder was and who the investor was. We talked about this too. That particular founder had, had made money. It was for Sequoia or I forget who it was, Kleiner Perkins. I can't remember. And he came back to them with another idea and they just gave him $40 million to run with because their returns with him had been so high anyway. I wouldn't necessarily call that altruism, but I'd call that like, friendism i don't know right, what the right yeah. word is but you know what i mean right yeah right but i guess when you're in like with hotasan you're in that position where you have a lot of choices you can decide what kind of investments you're going to make you're going to invest in something that you feel passionate about and if he's going to go to vietnam and build a help build the ecosystem that's something you can get excited about right very very and his specialty he likes that he's a developer by training he's an engineer by training right. So he and he also feels like he has a lot of experience in the mobile space and mobile basically everything's mobile first in Southeast Asia. And he feels like he can help people understand how to deploy capital. Mm. 
So yeah, he can get very excited about it, and he can be really passionate about what's going on in Vietnam because he does see a lot of growth there. And again, to be fair, there have been a few very successful companies in Vietnam started by Japanese entrepreneurs. Yeah. So he feels comfortable there. And for a while, his business partner Miku Hirano-san, I think, lived in Ho Chi Minh, I believe, but lived in Vietnam and was starting one of her companies there. And one of her other companies just got funded as well. Hmm. So she's she's been quite prolific. Um, her most recent company is called Recor, and it's funded by Cyber Agent, which is Japanese, TBS, which is Japanese, Incubate, which is Japanese, and then the fund I was talking about earlier, Golden Gate Ventures. So she is one of the most prolific. And I hate this, but she is one of the most prolific female entrepreneurs. Right. And I like the fact also that she's Japanese. It brings a really international flair to what she's doing in this region. She's really good. I've met her in person. She's, she's very charismatic, very like exciting, and also deeply creative and a great entrepreneur. So, yeah, she's very good for the ecosystem as well. But Hotasan started a fund, and, and, and I like it a lot, actually. Sorry, go mm. ahead. I interrupted. No, you didn't. I mean, I'm excited by this story because I wonder if – I mean, like Hotasan – and, you know, those kind of entrepreneurs, whether they need to go to places like Vietnam to kind of get that raw entrepreneurship that they're looking for, right? That maybe they can't find that at home. And this kind of entrepreneur needs to go out there and, you know, go to the the frontier, so to speak, and work. I know that they've chosen some pretty cutting edge technologies as well that they're going to work with in that fund. They're talking about VR, IoT, AI. You know, they've not just gone to Vietnam and said, right, we're going to invest in Southeast Asian companies, they've had a specific right. remit, right? Which is interesting. I suppose that's kind no. of refreshing as well, right? It's very, very interesting. And you make a super good point, and that is Hotasan, why wouldn't he just do it in Tokyo? Yeah. And Hirano-san, why would she move to Ho Chi Minh and not move to, you know, Fukuoka, which has a relatively robust yeah, right. interest in startups and technology, but instead they both came to Southeast Asia. What does that tell you about the ecosystem in Japan? And you know, we talk about that connectivity a lot and that yeah. comparison, does it tell you? I love it. Yeah, I love it too, because it again, it fits into my thesis, but I feel sad for Japan because right. it, it could use this, it could be so <laughs> great. But then, you know, you're fighting fundamentals. I don't, we've gone into this in the other, the other episodes about, you know, it's a declining population. You've got less and less young people, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you can't fight that, can you? You've got to go where the, you know, you've got to mine where the gold is. And they've got to go to places like Vietnam and Thailand because that's where it is for these guys. Yeah. And, and again, the Japanese have been some of the biggest foreign direct investors in the region forever in industrial companies and they're just continuing that trend in technology and startup mm -hmm. companies and investment companies and again the incubate fund has an office in singapore that's their base in southeast asia cyber agent ventures has offices all over asia but one of them is in thailand another one is in vietnam i know those guys really well and tbs i believe this is the tokyo broadcasting system i don't right. know their i don't know their team but they've made an investment in a company that has nothing to do with Japan per se. So good for everybody, I think, in this. Yeah, more of it. Much more. So let's move up the let's move up the size of the next bit. one. I don't want to yeah. say Yeah, I don't want to say up the chain necessarily, right? But now you're talking about Kajora Ventures. So Kajora Ventures <clears throat> um, is a team that that wants to start a fund um here it, it's raising they say about 80 million us dollars they've already raised about a third of it they've spent almost all of 2016 doing it and they're what they say 16 of the funds are through their idea idea box program so mm. this is this is going to be something that takes money from high net worth families in southeast asia europe and in hong kong but again a bigger style fund right mm. And, you know, their background obviously comes out of private equity, investment banking and entrepreneurship. So this is more of a standard style fund. But it's good to see that they're also having the ability to raise a much larger fund and they're going to be able to do things like follow on in a way that the smaller funds won't be able to do. And they really want to focus on, as they say, right, so building sustainable businesses in this region and they're going to help people focus um, on that, but again, really, really good for the ecosystem from for size, right? Hmm. And again, helping with. We spent a lot of time last year talking about how the investment ecosystem is maturing, but not mature yet. 
And I think the larger size funds like this, particularly with the background and experience of this team, um, is going to help bring a little bit more maturity to the investment process in this region. And, you know, for a company that has operations in, what is it, Indonesia, Singapore, the Philippines, and they just recently opened an office in Thailand as well. I think you're talking about adding just more power and more experience to the ecosystem. It kind of fits into everything that we've been talking about. Um, and I like that quite a bit. How are these guys different to what's already out there, Kajora? I mean, what, what do they sort of bring to the table that we don't have already in Southeast Asia? Why, why did you pick this piece of news? What excited you about it? Well, I mean, first of all, the size, right? And the fact that they, this is their second fund, not their first fund, right? So in, in the first fund, they were only investing around a million dollars for a company. They're going to invest about two to five in this. So everything they're going to do is bigger. They're going to invest across the whole spectrum, right? Which they, they can do everything from what I call seed to series B, which is, real, which is really good. Most funds in the region can't do that. They pick, they pick a, um, a part of the investment curve where they're going to invest. And these guys want to do the whole thing. I really like this a lot. And they're also sector, what they call sector agnostic. What does that mean? It means just show me a good idea. Show me something that's right. going to grow really big and show me something that's going to take advantage of all the growth dynamics in the region. And we will consider it and we'll consider it at any stage of its growth, right? And <clears throat> it's getting to be a little bit of a cliche, but they are focusing a lot of their investment, and I heard this today as well, they're investing in people, not in necessarily business ideas, mm. right? So they really want to invest in people that are passionate about their ideas in the company and not people that are necessarily trying to just take advantage of something that they think is trendy or you know, really current and hip. They want people, as I like, that are looking for big market gaps and going to fill those market gaps and are really passionate about, um, about filling them. So that's, that's really good. And there's, you know, their focus is going to be doing something I like a lot. That is, you're going to start early stage and you're going to build in and follow on into later stage companies. And there's nothing like that. That's super helpful, I think, for any ecosystem. And the fact that they're going to do the whole, the whole curve is actually really important to me. Right. And they've mentioned that word sustainable. That's come up quite a bit recently, hasn't it, in these conversations? Is that sort of, or is that VCBS or is that genuine? What were your thoughts on that? Because it's kind of a bit of a buzzword at the moment, building sustainable companies, sustainable ecosystems. What, what's your thoughts on that? Is that genuine? I think it's really, really genuine. And again, it depends how you define the term sustainable, right? right? And I think in this case, what they, what, I think everybody wants to build a company that lasts for a while, but I think what they're really talking about is investing in sort of the overall sort of catch-all phrase of sustainability, hmm. right? Which is a, which is a very different metric, and I, I don't think it's just VC speak at any level. As a matter of fact, I think what venture capitalists are realizing is that they have some social responsibility as well, hmm. that they're just not only investing for a financial return, but they're investing for a greater good and investing in companies that have a sustainability um, avenue to them are really important. And I, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I'll keep mentioning it. We see a lot of people talking about not just sustainability, but sort of socially responsible investing. Right. And it's, it's more than just like CSR. CSR is really easy for big corporations to do, right? They have a department, they allocate $2 million to it, and it's just like buzzword speak. Not, I'm not very impressed. But when investors are taking money from limited partners and convincing them that they want to invest money into companies that are focused on that type of sustainability, I think it's really important because they're doing it from the beginning. They're not bolting it on actually in the middle or at the end of this process. And I think mm -hmm. that's really differentiating and really important. Yeah. So they, they also, I don't know if it was the Kajora guys or the um, Hotosan. Yeah. So, oh. I mean, whether it was them but in one of the articles they mentioned about focusing on companies that solve problems for big populations and that's sort of in this ballpark isn't it where they're they're dealing with some, you know problems that are specific to this region as well and we're sort of going back to many of these conversations we had and i know you're big on infrastructure and how you like these startups that are involved in building out this sort of fabric the technological fabric of these societies and that's sort of an exciting area and I wonder if that's the kind of thing they're going to be looking at as well. You know, whether, whether that, you know, that's, it's building out the physical infrastructure or technology infrastructure or whatever. It's, it's something that's needed to make society progress, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it, you have 
super high opportunities to do well by doing good out here. And I think it was the Kajora team who said, we want to invest in companies that are solving problems of a big population, right? They want to target these companies that are highly scalable and where the financial returns are, con- are commensurate with that high scalability. Um, and in that case, they're willing to put a decent amount of money in because, again, they feel like they're doing something good. And by doing something good, their investors get to um, have a good return as well. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that, right? I mean, in the same way, and I'm not sure that there's a huge equivalency here, but in the same way, in the same way that Southeast Asia has kind of skipped, for the most part, sort of the desktop internet and moved directly to mobile, I think they're moving right on to a sort of sustain, sustainability and social responsibility even before the investors themselves become billionaires as a result of their investing. Like I don't think it's too hard for a very successful investor in the United States after making a lot of money to say to then say I think right now I'm concerned about sustainability. Mm. But also remember you're talking about economies in different states of development as well. So you can't really I don't like the word blame, but you can't really point out sort of the, the deficiency of the investing style that was in the United States in the 80s and 90s and actually early 2000s because they really only had to work with what was going on in the U.S. And at that point, you know, there was there was already focus on, you know, clean air, clean air, how to, you know, low fuel consumption, solar power, nuclear, all these things that were sort of pointing towards sustainability but might not have had like a name yet. Mm. But in Southeast Asia, these economies are really in a growth stage, and all of those things matter. I mean, even China, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, said they want to become the largest solar power producer and renewable energy producer in the world because they're realizing wow. – they, they did. and They're realizing that all the sort of coal-fired furnaces that they're using are creating yeah. um, pollution that even they don't like. Right. It's unsustainable, right? right? <laughs> at the end of the day, right? <laughs> you know, at the end, if you look at the pollution indexes in these cities, it's, well, you know, it's unsustainable. It is unsustainable. The people don't like it. The governments themselves don't like it. And I always say this, too, when people complain about what the development environment is like. I'll just say in Asia as a whole, they forget what it was like in the late 1800s and early 1900s in the United exactly. States and earlier in Europe as the Industrial Revolution was happening there. So it's very easy to put your finger in the air and say, you know, the people in Asia and Southeast Asia don't care about the right. environment. But yeah. they're in the same stage that people in the U.S. were in the late 1800s when the Industrial Revolution was happening there. So Exactly. Different priorities. So, yeah, never mind. Michael, you, one, one question I wanted to ask you, and as a, you know, just – educate me about this is I know you mentioned that with Kajora they were raising a lot of their capital from high net worth families across Asia and I wonder you know does that does that affect the kind of investments they can make and also I mean how does that compare to the US for example I mean do we have that kind of scene there we did I think what you find is that a lot of institutions in the United States right so he, uh, have been investing in venture capital sort of for the last two rounds right so in the early days in the 70s and even in the early 80s you had the same type of thing very wealthy ex-industrialists or ex-successful technologists would say I've made all this money how can I turn this money into more money right I'm, I'm wealthy, but I'm not rich. How can I get richer by investing my money? And they pooled their capital into these sort of venture capital um, vehicles. And I think you're seeing the same thing out here. Now, now in the United States, these have become much more institutionalized, right? In the same way that Harvard runs one of the largest hedge funds in the United States, Harvard right, yeah. University. Um, it's likely, and they call those alternative investments, right? So it's not investing in stocks or bonds or real estate. It's just alternative. And they're beginning to allocate percentages of their um, of their endowments and just their assets into these different investments. And I think we're at the stage in Southeast Asia where the high net worth individuals are saying, you know, we've had a packaging company or we've had a milk and dairy company or a beer company for two generations. But if we're going to sustain that wealth into the foreseeable future, we're going to have to take some of our available assets and invest them in ventures that we either A, don't understand or B, are riskier than has been common for us up until now. Hmm. So to me, this is not a very big surprise. And what will happen is they'll create more wealth. And as the middle class gets bigger, they'll save money. You know, crowdfunding will happen the same way it happened in the United States. And then you'll see a different sort of investment scene develop as 
a, a generation of funds, not necessarily a generation of people, but a generation of funds raise their second tier and, and, and third term funds, and you'll see a bigger swath of people kind of investing in them. But yeah, for now, I think it's going to have to fall to these high net worth individuals and really, really small kind of SMEs or actually larger SMEs that have excess capital to invest. Did, mm. did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I'm sense? just curious because it seems like that's a, you know, I, I was wondering whether they're plugging the gap here in Asia as a result of the institutional investors not stepping up to the plate, so to speak, you know, and whether that was the result of that. And also just curious as to how that would shape the investment scene as well. What kind of, you know, does it give them, um, I mean, if you were wealthy, the son of a wealthy industrialist, you might have a bit more bandwidth to take risk or to do things or to get involved with this stuff. So I'm just wondering whether that would change their outlook and the kind of startups they would invest in rather than ones that just produce a good return. They might be interested in one that actually, you know, had some kind of net benefit to society or sustainability, that kind of thing. So I've seen, I've actually seen things that fall into three large categories. Okay. The first category is the one you just mentioned, the son or the grandson of a wealthy kind of industrialist that wants to take a little bit more risk and their father or their grandfather, because in most cases, these are male founded companies. That's not my fault. It's just, is a fact, um, gives them permission to risk $5 million without worrying about return. But that's a small population. And I think the next two are kind of evenly split where the sons and daughters of the industrious will go to their parents and say, look at what's going on in the United States. Look at the amount of companies that are trying to get started in the startup world, particularly in technology, something about which we know nothing, but which we know is going to be significant going forward. Can you give us some money to invest in this mm-hmm. and we'll manage it for ourselves? Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to give it to a money manager. We don't want to pay 2% fees and we don't want to give somebody 20% of the carry We've been educated overseas, and we think we can manage this money for our family better than somebody else can manage it for ourselves. So it's not really a family office per se, hmm. but it, it kind of feels like a family office. They take, you know, and they have to spend some time taking a little bit more risk for their families, but they're happy to do it. And they've convinced the previous generations that, look, this money might go away. But what we're doing is we're paying tuition and we, we're setting up for the next round. I have had Japanese people say this to me as well. We want to put $2 million into Southeast Asia. We don't care if we make any money. We just want to learn. And the only way to learn is to be in the game. And I've seen that. And the other category, which is slightly lar- larger than the second, but much larger than the third, is <clears throat> this generation of, of, um, of kids get some money from their parents, and it can, be, it can be significant. I'm talking 50, 100 million dollars. But they only want to invest in companies that mirror what's already been successful in the United States or from Silicon Valley. And I think there are multiple reasons for this. One is they're really, really risk averse, and while they've convinced their families to give them money, they haven't convinced their families that, they're, mm. that it's okay to take the risk or that they'll even be good at managing that risk. Okay, so if something goes wrong, they can say, well, a company like Stazilla, which is Indian, but, but is a decent enough example, um, worked in the United States, that's the Airbnb model. I take people that aren't proper hotels but have extra rooms and I create a business that's going to let them stay there, but it has a local flair to it. If we invest in that company, we know it's a multi-billion dollar company in the US. It should be out here as well. That's the type of stuff that they invest in. And then when it goes sour like Stazilla did because it announced that yesterday or two days ago you know the reaction from the family is probably pretty negative but the reaction from the next generation investor is probably something like this look it didn't feel that risky to me because it had already worked Mm -hmm. right and to me that's the worst kind of investment because you're not investing for anything for any other reason except it this has worked before and I don't think that's a good idea. But that, those are three sort of really large categories. And I've, and I've spoken to people in all of those situations. So I, I know that for a fact, yeah? Mm. And I think it's going to take kind of one round of investments for people to actually understand what it means to be a venture capitalist. Because this is the other conversation that I've had as well. You can invest your own money in a business that you already understand, Right. So if you're in the beverage business and you want to create a new beverage or invest in a beverage company that's separate and different from yours, you're probably going to be able to add value and be able to help out. 
But if you're going to invest in a logistics business that's creating um, cutting-edge technology, you may not have the expertise to understand that. But you'll miss that investment too because it won't make any sense to you why that warehousing business is different from another warehousing or, or logistics business. Mm. But if somebody was managing your money, it might be worth the very small fees that you're going to pay them to actually make money on that because in the end, it'll actually help your industrial business, your beverage business by having the best warehousing and logistics, which is a winning formula, by the way, for any business. But I mean, that was the whole, Walmart did this twice, right? In two places. One, it helped them with their suppliers and lowering costs. But two, they could out logistics any offline business. It was one of the things that made them so successful in the United States. Right, exactly. Same with Coke as well. I mean, they got Coca-Cola Enterprises, which is the, the huge logistic monster that, you know, makes the whole Coke show flow, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, their bottling business is very profitable. They're obviously their drink businesses and snack businesses as well. But yeah, for sure. Right. What else have we got? What other stories are out there in the well? The, news? We missed the we missed the last one. K two, right? K two Global. This is a this is a this is a venture capital firm. They've got headquarters in Silicon Valley and in Singapore. They're the biggest of the funds that have announced over the past week or so. They're talking about almost a two hundred million dollar fund. Mm. And they want to do something. So what's the differentiating factor here? Well, the other teams want to invest locally, right? The first one was smaller, wants to invest in Vietnam as its main focus. The second fund, the Kajora team, wants to invest in the rest of Southeast Asia. But what K2 is saying, and this is also interesting, is we want to bridge the gap between Asia and Silicon Valley because we want to have impact on a global scale. Like you listen to a lot of these companies talking. I'm telling you, I listen to this from a very different perspective. But I heard somebody interviewing, I wish I could remember who it was, but interviewing somebody yesterday on a podcast about how, you know, they flew to Boston from California to talk to somebody about a business and that then the boss, the business expanded to Atlanta. And I just thought, that's really great. But when is that business going to expand to Jakarta <laughs> and to Bangkok and to Ho Chi Minh and to Manila, like had no idea. Right. It didn't even it didn't even enter into their conversation. And these are like well respected journalists, venture capitalists, startups. Oh, I remember who it was. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But but the point is that they didn't even think about it. But this company, K2 Global, is saying, here's what we're gonna do. We've already invested in companies like Magic Leap. We've invested in Spotify, which is a European company, Twilio, and in Uber. And now what they're saying is they want to do multiple things, right? They want to be positioned to take American companies into Asia. So they want to do kind of like a market entry business on, at scale, which is really interesting. Mm. They want to take Asian companies and bring them to the United States at scale because there are companies in Asia that take a different tact on things, right? So like some of your dating apps like Pactor is different than Tinder. Mm. It, has, it has different things and the Pactor team has been very successful out here in building sort of an online swipe left, swipe right business. And their idea is maybe we can bring some of that knowledge back to the United States. And then on top of that, that sitting on top of that whole sort of market entry business is they want to invest in companies that want to be global. There's no reason why they can't find a company that's getting built in Singapore or built in Ho Chi Minh or built in you know, Malaysia that could potentially dominate in the United States. There's no reason why an ad tech company can't come out of this region mm. and dominate in the United States because, again, it's mobile first here, so their experience with mobile ads or location-based things could be better here than it is in the United States. And also their ability to understand multiple cultures and multiple languages um, in different time zones is much more well um, embedded here because every country has a different language, a different culture, and potentially a different time zone as well. So what this business wants to do, and this is how it's differentiated from some of the other funds we talked about earlier, one of the reasons why it needs to be larger as well is because they want to contribute to sort of the globalization and the at-scale investing, not just in one location, but in the whole world, and basically bridging Asia and the United States. Again, something we've talked about a lot here, and you know we haven't been able to raise our money, but kudos to these guys for, and for this team to be able to do that. Um, yeah, and you know, they're, they're, one of their mantras is they want to invest in third-wave companies or third-wave startups, right, which they define as you know, companies that challenge incumbent players. I'm not sure what that means. That sounds a little bit like VC speak to me, mm, yeah. right? But 
I think what it means is that they just want to take companies that are really differentiated and they want to make they want to make them global. They want companies to look at building globally from the get-go so they don't have to retrofit things on top of it. And the perfect example of this is a company like eBay, ridiculously successful, right, in each of its individual markets. But if you want to list something on eBay Germany and list something on eBay United States, it's really problematic. Yeah, and, right. Because they're not connected to each other. They're almost like separate businesses. And just getting it translated, like most people don't understand how sophisticated the back ends of these companies are. Right? So just the just the descriptions of an SKU in Germany could be different than it is in, in the United States for the same product. So getting those things translated getting the prices right, getting the currency fluctuations right, getting the logistics relationships right. These things are all really hard. So getting a fund like K2 Global that can bridge this gap between these two regions and then take those companies global, I think is really significant and also a big differentiator. And that's exciting. I wonder as well, I mean, there, there, there is a sort of a, a larger risk at play here. I mean, if you were to take an, an e-commerce player global from Asia... I just wonder. I mean, let's say you were to take a. I, I, what, what I'm trying to get to, Michael, is I, I wonder if if their position to could they take a flip car and make them global with all their you know their challenges and when you look at a, a player like Alibaba and I know some of the the partners have had backgrounds with Alibaba, who you know we're going to go global anyway, right? So you know, is there a danger that you could take one of these sort of Asian e-commerce players and and you know, springboard them global and just burn through those $200 million in no time at all. Yeah, I mean, I think e-commerce is a uniquely local, <laughs> this is my opinion, right? And we've talked about this before. I think it's a uniquely local thing and regional at best, right? Because the purchasing patterns of somebody in Osaka are going to be very different than the purchasing patterns of somebody in Kansas City. They just are. And if you list the same products in the same market, they're not going to buy them. Fashion trends in Korea are different than fashion trends in Croatia. Mm. Right? And while some of these, while some countries copy the fashion trends or the music trends of other countries, I just don't think that that's ever going to be global. And to be fair, I think if you watch what's going on in the world cyclically, I think those things are going to get more polarized rather than less polarized. Just an opinion. Okay. So e-commerce, I think, is a is a is not the best example for this. Um, but I do think there are places, logistics may be one of them, where just having a global system that's interconnected, whether it's shipping or warehousing, I think really makes sense um, from an infrastructure standpoint if you can connect all those things because. Theoretically, there are trains, buses, water transportation, um, and road transportation, and air transportation in every country, and connecting those things, and also seafaring vessels, right? But connecting those things all over the world has just been logistically very hard. And attacking that with software, which is what these investment companies want to do, I think could prevent, could um, be very powerful. Mm. So the the big wins or even the small wins with these guys are going to, you're long on logistics. If you were to take an Asian company and take it global, the chances are that it would be in the logistics space rather than the e-commerce space. I just don't think here's the thing. Like like I said, I just don't think that an e-commerce business like look at how long Amazon's been building its yeah. e-commerce business for two decades or more and they don't really do that much business in Southeast Asia, in right. China, or frankly, in Japan. There is Amazon.co.jp. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, it was one of the first sites that got translated into English, but I think it's dwarfed by Rakuten and by Yahoo Shopping, mm. and even by some of the stuff that's done by GMO. I, I just don't think a lot of people who are Japanese shop on Amazon. Now, yeah. what, has, what has Amazon built, though, that is global easily is a business like AWS, all the back-end server stuff. Exactly. Because that's the infrastructure that everything runs on. So when I talk about logistics and infrastructure, I'm not just talking about um, you know, hard goods. I'm not just talking about roads and planes and trains. I'm talking about the back-end infrastructure of the Internet. And that has not been completely built out yet. I think every time a generation comes and says, well, there's nothing else left to build, somebody comes along and builds something else 
that sits on top of everything or that everything else has to sit on top of. And we can't conceive of it. If we could, we'd be doing that and not talking about it. Hmm. So those are the types of things that I like. And that's my bias too, right? I mean, we talk about it a lot, but I do have a bias to that. But something like e-commerce, you see e-commerce companies in the United States start up and just fall to the wayside or get bought up really quickly, but they don't really turn into much. And I think those businesses, as I said earlier, are just uniquely local and regional and not. But, but what you will see, here's what you will see though, right? For certain categories, you're going to want to see people. There are two things going to happen. One, for certain categories, people are going to buy like cameras or cell phones or whatever. This stuff is going to trade globally. But you're going to have people make it easy and seamless to have products move from one market or listings of products move from one marketplace to another marketplace really easily. Mm. I know companies that are building technology like this and those companies are going to be huge because they're going to take a cut of every little piece of um, economic activity that takes place on the internet because all of it needs to be translated um, and that's never going to go away. So, right, so if you've got a seller in Japan who wants to sell stuff in the United States, they don't want to translate it, but they can just like list it once and sell it everywhere. If it's a global product, that's going to be. And, and what do I mean? I, I mean, I'm talking about everything from as simple as just like a pair of socks yeah. with Hello Kitty on it to a digital camera made by Sony. Right? Maybe somebody has a special deal or has used equipment or whatever, and they want to sell it in Japan, United States, and Russia. They don't want to list it three times. That's a business I think that's going to be huge. And I know someone who's building that business too. But that's the style of stuff I think that's going to get built globally as opposed to just pure e-commerce. And, and again, I was sitting in a coffee shop doing some work yesterday. And there was only one other guy in there. So being me, I just said, hey, man, what's your name? What do you do? And we started talking. And here is a guy who is a golf pro. Okay, so he teaches corporate executives in Thailand how to play and improve their golf game. Mm. Why do I like? Why do you care? Well, you care because on the side, he runs a factory direct e-commerce business that connects to products in China that he tests every day, and he's selling products to people in the United States that are just made in China. And he's pushing to them. So basically what he does is he finds out what their interests are on Facebook by what they like and don't like, what he sees them viewing, and then he pushes products to them that are categorized by based on the things that they like. And he's seeing his business grow very quickly. That is like a really interesting way to do e-commerce. But those types of businesses can be invested as well. Yeah. Just to get back to the theme that you were talking about before, that I think is going to be really useful. And I think this whole concept of factory direct Hmm. We could talk about this on another show, but I think this whole concept of you're not going to a store, you're going directly to a factory that's being facilitated to buy a product. That's right. the future of retail, I think. And I don't think anybody really disputes that. We're seeing a lot of interesting developments with that. I mean, if you were to take a flight from Bangkok an hour up to Chiang Mai or even over to Ho Chi Minh, there's a lot of guys who are doing this in very low-key businesses as you know mm -hmm. drop shipping businesses where they could be i mean I, I met a chap who was you know running a, a large well i would say a seven-figure business effectively importing uh fun exporting furniture from china to the west coast of the u.s whilst working and living in ho chi minh city yes. and, it, and on the face of it he was a guy in a coffee shop <laughs> with a laptop Yes. But, you know, and you think, wow, you know, what these guys have discovered is a way of bootstrapping and growing a business very properly. They've discovered the process. Now, all you kind of need if you were to take that is a, a little bit more capital and you could have a yes. very interesting business. And I think that's what really excites me. And I wonder that because they live in this sort of front line where anything's possible, the Wild West, so to speak, where they're out of all the... You know, the paradigms of you know Silicon Valley and stuff like that, where they're just these guys operating on their own, you know, they can come up with these ideas. And that really excites me. And I wonder how much of that will filter through to the, you know, the institutions and to the investors in the future. And who knows? But it's just exciting that they're coming up with ideas that you wouldn't even know until they you know, actually ran you, walk you through their business, that this was possible. Yeah. I mean, look, it surprised me. And frankly, I said to him, how big is your business? He said, well... I did um, $6,000 last month, and I did of sales, right? 
And I did 3,000 of that in the last week. So it's growing, he said. And again, just getting back to your comment about can you do e-commerce globally? Remember, he's sourcing product in China and selling only in the United States. He's English, by the way. Hmm. So he's taking from the biggest manufacturing market with the, with the best sum cost to value and then selling it in the wealthiest market in the world to people that want to buy things at a discount. So it's a great, like you said, it's a great business model. And now the question is, can it scale if it gets invested? Super question. And he's living in Bangkok? He lives in Bangkok and he teaches golf. He's <laughs> golf. I don't even know his last name. Right. But, but what's even more interesting, he, I said to him, why did you start this business? He said, well, my buddy was telling me that he generates a million dollars of revenue a year. And I, so I said to him, that's great. But what's, what are his margins? He said 30%. Mm. So here's a guy who like doesn't work for anybody, sources products in China, yeah. does some testing, sends out targeted emails, so he uses a tool to do that. And he makes $300,000 a year post his expenses. Yeah, yeah. Now you tell me, my guess is that guy is not American, but you tell me to which government entity is that man paying taxes? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't ask too many um, questions. Yeah, I didn't ask that question. <laughs> we got it worked uh, out somewhere in Hungary. So I think yeah. the interesting thing is that, you know, that if you think about these guys as well, if they're based in Bangkok, the burn time on that business is going to be significantly better than if they were based in California, right? So they, they've sure. got a bit more leeway to make, take risk and, to, and, and work it out, right? I mean, they, they may get double the burn time of a guy in California, which gives them double the time to make mistakes. So that's really yeah. interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, the fact well, that if he was in a very expensive city and having to hire developers who would be very expensive as well, he wouldn't get a lot of time to go out there and test it out and work out what exactly it is that's going to work with his business. Absolutely. And, and he has all of his analytics on his iPhone 7. <laughs> that's provided, I remember he built his, I asked him, I said, who builds your front end? He said, I just use Shopify. <laughs> so he's got a Shopify right, yeah. front. Okay, and Shopify provides all the analytics. He showed me graphs and charts and data from stuff that was really impressive. And he was in a coffee shop on a side street. You wouldn't even have known like that he had any business at all. Okay, and, and frankly, the only reason why we really started talking to each other is because he parked his Vespa in front of the coffee shop. And I ride a Vespa as well. And I said to him a joke, like, what do you need a Vespa to get into this coffee shop? Hmm. And that's how it started. And then in the end, I just wanted more stuff to talk about. So I asked him what he did for a living. And remember, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. So if he had like a full-time job, he would have been there already. But yeah, I find this whole concept really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, we're scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So, right, then, surprise this week. You, you are a man <laughs> who likes to bring us a surprise every week on the show. What have you got for us today, Michael? <laughs> okay. Well, that's a big surprise. Um, and I think this company itself is going to provide a lot of that's a big surprise segments for us. Um, I wanted to talk about something else, but we'll save that for next week. The, the, the real thing that I want to talk about was a company called Zalora, a rocket internet company that had, was started and funded with tons of fanfare. Fashion only, right? So not like its sister company, Lozada, which is really just a marketplace for everything. Zalora was meant to be a fashion company. It is selling off 49% of its Philippine business. It's getting out of its Indonesia business, selling for a much lower price than, um, than what it costs to build. And just this was part of the whole internet rush back in 2000, end of 2011, 2012, and 2013, and created a lot of fear actually in Southeast Asia. And a lot of us sat on the sidelines and said, you know, again, you can hire a bunch of mercenaries who have no passion for a business. You can pay them fifteen to $20,000 a month to fly in and just throw money at fashion retail online. But in the end, th this business is never going to succeed. And this is proof positive, like not a big surprise that uh, this company is either A, going to go out of business or B, is just going to have a lot of trauma around it. And its valuation is going to be much lower than whatever its last funding round was. And frankly, I haven't heard of a lot of funding for Zalora recently. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I like it because these, the articles that we talked about were from a few days ago, February 23rd, February 24th. 
And in the ensuing days, the CEO of the company regionally said, we're not getting out of Indonesia. We're not selling our business in the Philippines. But whenever mm -hmm. this happens, right, you know that that stuff is, is true, but they're just trying to spin it in a way that's different. So that's a big surprise. Mm -hmm. Not not really. Not really. But these guys had good backing. I mean, what's the sort of the uh, the batting average of a, an investor like Rocket Internet? These are the German VC fund, right? I mean, do they have a good track record compared to their, their peers? It's a really good question. I mean, if you look at the two companies, well, the three... Four, I want to go four companies that came to Southeast Asia with gigantic fanfare. So Zalora, not doing so well. Um, Zalada, which was, I mean Lazada, sorry, which was sold at one third of its highest valuation price to the Chinese. You had Easy Taxi, which was meant to come in. Big story, about forty million dollars of global funding. Easy Taxi came in before Grab Taxi and before Uber. That disappeared very quickly. Um, and then what is it, Food Panda? Mm. So Food Panda bought, a, bought food by phone, and then they sold off all their businesses as well. So I don't know. Maybe their track record includes things in Southeast Asia <laughs> that I, of which I am not aware. Mm. But I will say this: there's not a lot. There's not a lot of love lost in the region. This is not me talking about me. This is me kind of looking at the lay of the land. There's not a lot of love lost for the Salma brothers in Southeast Asia. Okay, mm. they tried to start a couple of in separate investment funds too. Some of their graduates, whatever that means, tried to start a logistics business because they thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, here's the thing though, right? If all you're doing is copying things that other people have done, it's just never gonna work. Like, they got really, they did a super great job, and I wanna say lucky, because you just cannot get that rich that fast if all you are is lucky. But they did really well by copying the Groupon model. Hmm. Um, in Europe, and then running the Groupon business globally. But I don't, you know, there's been one more company in the fashion space that sits inside their sort of um, online retail business. But otherwise, right, I mean, what do they have? The GFG, the Global Fashion Group, um, which raised another 300 and something million dollars in the middle of 2016. But even their companies in the Middle East are not doing so great. There's really one company that has dominated online retail in um, in Europe, again, whose name escapes me. But it's like, I don't know, La Moda, so I can't remember the name of it. But to be fair, it doesn't matter. Um, but otherwise, they haven't been very successful out here. And like I said, not a lot of love lost. So, What have you done? If you had the access to the capital that they were sitting on and you came to Southeast Asia, what would you have done differently, Michael? Well, we talked about this. We talked about this last week, right? Or two weeks ago, I can't remember, right? So I had a large Korean company come and ask me for advice. They had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to spend. They'd already built businesses in Eastern Europe and in the rest of Southeast Asia, and they wanted to come into Thailand. And they said, "Should we buy, or should we build ourselves?" And I said, "Wait, you've already built all these businesses. You understand best practices. If you have access to capital, why would you spend it on a business that hasn't been very successful?" Why wouldn't you build a business from, from scratch that has best practices? So if someone was going to give me $300 million or $400 million, what I would build, and I it's very consistent in my opinion on this thing, what I would build is platform and infrastructure businesses where the verticals that plug into it, I'm indifferent, but the horizontal side of the business, which can then connect to any part of whatever infrastructure or ecosystem that I choose, whether it's medical, you can connect insurance to it. You can connect travel to it. You can connect hospitals to it. You can connect clinics. You can do dentistry on the other side. So you, if you want to build a platform that does that, I would invest in that, right? We talked about the logistics business because every e-commerce company is going to plug into it. And I would actually have started an AWS-style business as well, mm. right? For the longest period of time, you had to go to Singapore if you lived in Thailand to run your back end. But there was always latency. If somebody had started an AWS-style business in Thailand or in Malaysia or in Indonesia, we didn't have to go through the internet pipes that connected those countries, I would have built that as well. And that's not new. That's not like a new idea with 2020 hindsight. That's something that we've been talking about for years. You can look at the things into which we have invested and that we do like, and it's very consistent across the board. Build me a platform 
into which I can plug multiple verticals, right, in a specific sector, and I'm happy to invest in that all day as long as the management company is good, right? And also, the other thing which is slightly different to that, but not really, is meta search, right? Everyone's afraid of Google dominating the search space globally. Um, but remember, not a lot of people search on Google, Google on mobile. Hmm. You don't see a lot of people opening up a web browser and searching for things on, on Google on their mobile devices, maybe on a tablet, maybe, but not on a phone. And what you need is a meta search company. Look at a company like Trivago, yeah, started right. in Germany, financed by Expedia, and um, just went public in December, right? Everybody laughed at them, like, hotels? You're gonna do meta search for hotels? Like, that's been done. And yet, it hadn't been done. Because if you look on Google, and remember, Google is uniquely a search engine for web pages, not for information. Right, so two problems you have: one, if you're a hotel that doesn't have a web page, you're not discoverable on Google, and two, if you're not a global chain, right, you may not have um, the money to buy AdWords on Google, and Google's not set up for you. Neither is TripAdvisor. What you need is a meta search company that's going to search for the best price and the best value, and they'll always list you at top because that's going to guarantee somebody a transaction somewhere. And Trivago has done an incredible job of doing that and you can make all yeah. the you can you can say all the problems you want about the fact that they spend 80% of their revenue on marketing but they're still in growth phase and if you listen to the CEO talk he's wildly dismissive about people that don't think that his business is going to continue to grow mm-hmm. and I, I think meta search is something that's going to be really important in this region as well so that's what I would have spent some of my money on good it's good to hear I mean if you had the assets the capital to hand that rocket internet had you're saying you're invested in those sort of the infrastructure, the meta search. You wouldn't invest it in an international meal delivery company. Then. <laughs> That's a bit unfair. I know we've had HelloFresh on here already, right? We did them a couple of weeks back, right? It's just the barriers to entry are too low. I oh, know. And you can't control. Here's the thing. I can't control the other side of the equation. I've spoken to people in the food delivery business and they said, yeah, we're just going to build a marketplace or build a system that does this. We're going to make it more efficient and all these other sort of platitudes. And yet in the end, there's a guy or a girl on a scooter delivering a meal who doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> because the only way you can get that business to have any efficiencies and make any money is by paying that person not so much money. And no matter how motivated they are, they're just not going to be motivated enough to make sure that like it's really good. I've ordered a pizza to this house so many times and they can't find it. It's taken, you know, 30 minute delivery takes an hour and a half. I just, I don't like the business here. The infrastructure is not set up for it. And there's no vig in it. Sorry. I can go on and on about that, but I just don't think there's any vig in it. Anyway. You got to be, I think you got to find some love for Rocket Internet. We'll have to dig deep, (laughs) dig deep on that one. But I, and look, I know people in this business. I talked to a guy who runs a food delivery logistics business and I just don't like it because I just don't like it. So I I ordered food, I don't know if it was last night or sometime this week, okay? And I didn't pay for it. My friend paid for it. And afterwards, I asked my friend, like, was it, who did the delivery? Did the restaurant do it themselves or did they have a service to it or was it Food Panda? Was it Food Bug? Like, who was it? Was it even Uber? Because we have Uber Eats out here now as well. And the answer I got was really great. It was like, I don't know. I didn't notice I didn't notice if they were wearing a uniform or not wearing a uniform. Wow. I wasn't paying attention because I didn't care. My food came, it was warm and it was good. <laughs> so So there's no brand loyalty either, exactly. right? Exactly. Anyway, I think that's enough. That's good. Well, exciting times. Good week. There's a lot going on in Asia at the moment. And thanks for Always. sharing. Yeah, those those new ventures, those new funds opening up with a, maybe a different angle as well. That's exciting. So yes. Yeah, more of the same. Let's find out next week. What are we going to talk about? Anything, any sort of snippets that you want to share with us to just to give us a taster of what will be coming up? <laughs> um, I don't want to give anything away, but there's always a lot of activity out here. Um, the big surprise next week will come from the middle of the week because it always does. There was one thing I wanted to talk about in the gaming space this week just because it's a – I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for this because I know the people involved, but I don't like – this just points back to the immaturity of stories, and I can talk a little bit about that next week. But there's a really good example of an investment that was reported but actually didn't get made, and I don't like it because I think it points to an immaturity in the market, and it denigrates the work that the rest of us are doing by saying something happened that didn't actually happen. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. 
Tune in next week. Asia Tech Podcast. Graham Brown, Michael Waits. Find us. Anything? At, yeah. Yep. Find us everywhere. You can find us on Instagram at Asia Tech Podcast. You can find us on LinkedIn at Asia Tech Podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, hashtag Asia Tech Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Michael Waits. And you can direct message me and ask me any questions. If you have any follow-up, let me know. We'll answer your questions. Thanks, Graham. Fantastic. You're a star, man. <laughs>